Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we discuss the importance of Miles Davis as a musician and visual artist. We talk through Miles' extensive legacy in jazz music, the incredible painting career he had in the 1980s, the influence of women like Cicely Tyson, and the impact Miles had on many young artists like Dad in the 1970s. Welcome back to another episode of Style Free Podcast, Dad. It's good to be with you, Papa, as always. <laughs> I feel like we got the same intro like every <laughs> episode. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. You, um, know, I don't, I, you know, I'm just, just say it, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, so like, I know that we've had a couple musical conversations uh, during this season. You know, we talked about me and my music a bit. We've talked about some album artwork and and really inspirational album covers and stuff. And one of the folks that we had mentioned in uh, that episode was actually Miles Davis. And I think he also might have come up during our conversation about me and my musical journey, just because he was one of the artists that was really influential to me because I heard so much of his music growing up in the house, predominantly Miles because of you. And so mm-hmm. I was curious, like you've always told me stories about Miles growing up, his childhood and his exploration into jazz and the various ways in which he you know, helped to shift the, the genre and the culture and push it forward in so many different ways. And even, you know, you know, how he lost his voice. Like you used to tell me all these stories as a kid, and it was always so interesting to me how enthralled you were by not just the musician, but also the person and his complexity and his story. And so I thought it'd be a really cool idea for us to, you know, kind of talk about Miles a bit and just dive into more of how influential he was for you, whether it was as a teenager or in college, um, but then also how he's influenced you as an artist, um, because Miles is also a visual artist as well as a musician. There's just so many different lanes and ways we can approach the conversation. But I guess the first question I have for you is really just what kind of turned you on to Miles Davis? Like, you know, where were you? You know, how old were you? When was this that you really got put onto his music? I probably got put onto Miles early on in high school. Mm-hmm. And indirectly, it was probably through my awareness of Herbie Hancock, Headhunters. Wow, yeah. And as I began to look more at what Herbie was doing with that album and starting to discover who Herbie had been connected with, I think that's when I became aware of Miles. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got into college, That's when I discovered Bitches Brew, which Mm -hmm. had been recorded a number of years earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, Albums like On the Corner. Mm -hmm. And when I would listen to the radio and would listen to Frankie Crocker, sometimes he would have jazz tunes along with contemporary R&B at that time and other types of music. And he would play Round Midnight, for example. Mm -hmm. And I would hear that intro to the song with Miles. And sometimes Frankie would use that as background music during his interviews. Mm -hmm. And I began to use that part of the song, Round Midnight, as an intro in my tapes that I would put together, my (laughs) mixtapes. 
So when you hear some of the older mixtapes that I did in the 80s, mm-hmm. you can hear interludes as though I'm queuing up to introduce a new song. Wow. And part of that use of interludes came from, of course, my exposure to Earth, Wind, and Fire mm-hmm. and the interludes that Maurice would have inserted in between the different songs that they did. So I'm saying that my earliest memory of Miles was around the time of uh, high school. And of course, I also had friends who were jazz musicians Mm, that came from, there were people who went to the High School of Music and Art, uh, people like Marcus Miller, who who I didn't directly know, Mm -hmm. but Nat Adderley Jr., Clifton Anderson, who was, of course, connected with Sonny Rollins, Mm -hmm. and many others. Steve Jordan, right? And Steve Jordan, absolutely Steve Jordan. And so these are the kind of individuals that I would meet and interact with in various ways. I remember meeting Thelonious Monk Jr. at a party that Clifton was giving at his his home, and he would talk about some of the stories uh, there as well. So that makes me think, like, you know, you're in high school and, you know, getting into college at this time, you know, besides your friends who were also into music and into jazz, like, were other kids like listening to Miles, like, you know, in the 70s, in the ways in which you were? Or was it because you were more closely connected with these up and coming young jazz musicians at the time? Well, I think my experience at music and art was in many ways unique to music and art. Mm-hmm. I don't know that many of the people of my generation outside of this particular context were listening as much to, you know, quote unquote jazz. Yeah. In fact, my tastes were very broad. My tastes were not limited just to, well, let me, let me pull back a little bit. I grew up in a household where jazz was played. Right. We had albums like uh, Kenny Dorham's Una Mas. We had, of course, Ella Fitzgerald, there was Ray Charles, there was Duke Ellington, the Newport Jazz Festival album, Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole. There was Calypso music. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of music out of Puerto Rico. And so my, my experience was very rich, perhaps in some ways unique. But I was also listening to R&B. I was also listening to pop, rock uh, on the various radio stations. Yeah. So I was open to a variety of different types of music, just as I was different artistic styles, because we had all kinds of artwork around our home growing Mm -hmm. up. And the idea of being in a school like music and art and thinking about the way in which visual arts connect with the music was a a natural for me. Because as I say, we listen to music in the home. We had artwork around us. So really being in music and art was like an extension of something that was a lived experience for me. And I subsequently came to learn that a number of musicians also love the visual arts. Yeah. And a lot of visual artists love music. (laughs) Right, right. It's like uh, how they say, like, rappers want to be athletes and athletes want to be rappers. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. You know, so this is all part of the, the groundwork that, really helped prepare me to appreciate Miles Davis and his various iterations in terms of music going from bebop in the 1940s 
a little bit of R&B there, I think around 1945 or so, in some of his early recordings, but certainly you know, full, full-fledged full into uh, bebop once he landed in New York and hooked up with Bird and yeah. Max Roach and all the others. So if you're in your teens, let's say, and this is entering, or I guess, well, with Bitches Brew in the midst of Miles's electric period, so to speak, how does it speak to you as a visual artist with a lot of these instrumental songs? You know, was it giving you inspiration for painting and drawing or would it just take you to different soundscapes and landscapes in your head? Like what like what, what would it do to you? Um, and then I guess the follow up would be how did you then kind of backtrack and start getting into some of the older stuff like bebop and, and, and the older miles like kind of blue and all that? Mm-hmm. Those are all great questions. I would say that the you, and you put it well. Listening to, let's take an album like Bitches Brew, which I heard in college. When I would listen to it, it was, it had elements of things that were familiar to me mm-hmm. in terms of R&B and rock. Mm-hmm. You know, my first experience with, one of my early experiences with rock besides seeing the Beatles, <laughs> but really the heavy kind of stuff was a friend of mine had an album called Disraeli Gears by a group called The Cream. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, he said, all right, check this out. Now check this out. And it was, are you experienced by Jimi Hendrix? And this is 1967. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm checking out this music. So that kind of helped, particularly the Hendrix and the cream that kind of helped prepare me for some of the things that I would start hearing mm-hmm. in miles. And so I'm saying it's an amalgam. It's a yeah. fusion, if you will. Yeah. Uh, it's the, there's some call and response. There's also, there's a certain kind of cadence, but there's also this sort of avant-garde approach where the time signatures are not very clearly marked. There's a lot of spaciousness yeah. in some aspects of the music. And I began to, in my mind, connect with this as, and you put it well, like a soundscape. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I could see these vistas. I could see these spaces, almost a synesthetic experience mm-hmm. you know, in terms of colors and, and shapes and that sort of thing, which is, I believe I mentioned to you in a previous podcast, Yeah, uh, listening to the music of James Brown. Mm-hmm. That's the first time that I remember seeing colors and angles. And in, in the case of James Brown, it was silver and blue and black and Mm -hmm. and the staccato horns were like sharp points you know of shapes yeah and when i started experiencing miles music now some years later it also had that kind of vista this darkness with bits of green and brown and other elements moving Mm. into my mind's eye yeah so it then translated i began to feel a kind of freedom to explore shape and line even more than I had up until that point, where now these vistas could become more fluid. They relied less on actual physical images that you could identify with very easily. They were more abstract. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the abstractness of music itself. You didn't have to label it as such. You didn't have to try to make it be necessarily a human sounding voice Mm -hmm. and so i felt as though i could now just explore color and line and shape independent of that i had already had inklings of that and Mm -hmm. of course as a child when you start painting you're making marks 
you are perhaps referencing a lived experience, you know, yeah. rather than just something out of your head yeah. um, completely. But nevertheless, I think that it, it's a kind of freedom that uh, Picasso said, you know, to, to sort of go back to that original experience. As Herbie Hancock and Albert said, you know, speak like a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's really important. Many artists have also talked about the experience like Matisse, you know, about experiencing your first communion, meaning the idea of that part within yourself, the way I interpret it, where you connect with something that's much larger than yourself. Right. Something that's more eternal. Right. And so uh, I reconnected with the idea through listening to Miles' music that you had the freedom to express yourself in any way that felt right in your spirit. So did that, as an abstract artist, did it change how you were approaching art too? Like, did your artistry change a bit after kind of seeing certain, these landscapes and soundscapes and stuff? It did, but there were so many other influences going on at the time that I can't say that that in and of itself or by itself, you know, was the, was the catalyst. Gotcha. Uh, there were many different things that that prompted that uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Most definitely. So <laughs> the um, <laughs> so going to my other question though about how you kind of backtracked a bit. Um, how did you get into kind of blue and miles ahead and sketches of Spain? Did that come after becoming a larger fan of his or did, was it the music that kind of spoke out in those styles of music? Cause they're definitely different than what he was doing whenever you first got yeah. put onto him in the seventies. I would say really the first experience came about visiting a friend, a photographer, extended family member by the name of Walter Winter. Mm. And Walter Winter was just an, an incredible photographer and a dear, dear, dear family friend. We, he's Essentially, he was family. Mm-hmm. And he was also an educator as well. And I remember he lived in uh, Skyview, where mm-hmm. we lived. I believe he might have lived in the second building, either 5800 or 59. I can't remember right now. But nevertheless, in visiting his apartment, one day we were talking about art and he showed me a instruction sheet that he would give out to all of his students, basically giving his philosophy. Mm-hmm. And next to it, I saw this album cover. I said, oh, what's, he said, oh, that's Miles Davis, kind of blue. <laughs> I said, oh, wow, kind of blue. Yeah, was that? Yeah, incredible album. I said, wow, I got to check this out. Now I was in high school at the mm-hmm. time. So I was already had become aware of Miles, you know, yeah. by that time. But of Miles, as I said, connected with Herbie, not actually listening to anything like Kind of Blue. Now it may have been on the radio at some point and I just wasn't cognizant of it, but I was not focused or intent on it. And there it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading the liner notes of Kind of Blue. It was by his pianist by the name of Bill Evans. Mm -hmm. Miles said was his his favorite. And this is what uh, Evans wrote. He said, there is a Japanese visual art in which the artist is forced to be spontaneous. He must paint on the thin stretched parchment with a special brush and black water paint in such a way that an unnatural or interrupted stroke will destroy the line or break through the parchment. Erasures or changes are impossible. 
these artists must practice a particular discipline, that of allowing the idea to express itself in communication with their hands in such a direct way that deliberation cannot interfere. The resulting pictures lack the complex composition and textures of ordinary painting, but it is said that those who see will find something captured that escapes explanation. And then he goes on to say, this conviction that direct deed is the most meaningful reflection, I believe, has prompted the evolution of the extremely severe and unique disciplines of the jazz or improvising musician. Hmm. So what I basically got from that was this idea of approaching something with honesty, with, with directness, yeah. uh, and with your whole being, surrendering yourself really to the moment. And I heard aspects of that in the way that Miles would improvise or some of his musicians would improvise, the way they not only said what they needed to say, but also the way in which they interacted with each other. Yeah. You know, it's very organic, very natural. Uh, and it began to open up a whole other way of thinking about communication. Mm -hmm. And it also, I think, encouraged me to think about the different aspects of the compositional elements that I would incorporate into a particular piece and how the, how those pieces as like figures or musicians or actors on the stage would interact and balance out with each other. Yeah. At the end of the day, balance is very important. Compositional mm -hmm. balance, you know, from my perspective. And that's something that I understood as being very important to somebody like Miles. Yeah. Um, Many years later, I discovered that he had an interest in the visual arts as well. So Miles learned to draw from his father. His father was a dental surgeon, and he taught both Miles and his brother, his younger brother, Vernon, uh, how to draw. I think Vernon was about three years younger than Miles. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I remember Miles saying was that Vernon could draw anything that was in front of him, but that he didn't have what Miles had, which was imagination. Mm. And how important imagination is in composition, not only in the visual arts, but also in music as well. You know, it's like a rapper, right? Yep. Take it off the top of your head. Right? Mm -hmm. You don't have you don't have your solo, you know, laid out you know, in <laughs> front of you where you're, you know, reading from a book or a page. Right. So you're in the moment, you're in the flow. Yeah. And you're responding to the music, you're responding to maybe another rapper you're in the realm perhaps of the idea the concept the motivating element that you want to talk about mm -hmm. and so all of this kind of spontaneity is something that the traditions of which go back a long way you can find examples historically of improvisation of course in classical music and other forms of music but in terms of the jazz tradition you know which is america's gift to the world yeah um, improvisation is really one of the fundamental or foundational elements of the music that we call jazz. Right. Cause that connects to, you know, the entire diaspora mm -hmm. getting into mm -hmm. blues and ring oh, shouts absolutely. and going all the way back to everything. Yeah. Africa. Yes. Yeah. And yes. Yep. So Miles is bringing this, he's bringing this into me. Now there are others who are also experimenting with this kind of fusion, this coming mm -hmm. together of different elements. Mm -hmm. But Miles, by, by dint of his, his own force of personality, his reputation, he had the wherewithal to find the people 
and he had the respect of the people to pull them together. And he knew also which individuals, like a chef, you know, and he loved to cook, <laughs> taking different ingredients. Well, this could be a little, little spice here, a little garnish there and so forth. <laughs> and so made it happen. And it inspired the world and certainly inspired me. Mm-hmm. And I began to listen to everything, not only that Miles was doing by the early 70s, but also the people that were associated with Miles. I started mm-hmm. getting into Weather Report. I had already been into the, the Headhunters, you know, right. so what Herbie was doing. But then I, I said to myself at a certain point, let me go back and find out what they were doing before they started doing this. Yeah. So I'd already had the experience of the kind of blue. I started mm-hmm. getting to that. But then I also went back and I found Speak Like a Child when I was in college by Herbie. And I said, well, let me check this out. And I loved it. I absolutely loved what he was doing. Yeah. I loved the way that he also found a way to paint pictures with sound mm-hmm. and the rhythmic effects that Herbie does so well. You know, there's so much rhythm in what he does. Yes, there's the inspiration of Gil Evans. There's the impressionistic piano voicings and so forth. But I really, really feel that when he gets into that percussive approach to his piano, it becomes, for me personally, very transcendent, Yeah. Uh, very engaged, very electric. Wow. And it's pretty cool that you've mentioned a lot of these other folks, because I'm thinking about, you know, when I'm growing up and a lot of the music you're playing around the house and it took me until I was in college, you know, high school at the earliest, probably, but definitely college age to really realize that all these other folks had also collaborated and been a part of Miles Davis's musical realm, whether they were part of his quintets or sextets or whatever. I mean, I know about, you know, Coltrane, and Herbie and, you know, his collabs with Dizzy and all, but as I got older and started diving more into his music, realizing he was part of Cannonball Adderley's group and um, just all the work that he's done with so many other people. I'm like, man, like Miles is everywhere. Like he's everywhere. So when you said that Miles was part of Cannonball Adderley's group. Yeah. Technically he was part of Cannonball Adderley's group on an album called something else. Mm -hmm. That's what Autumn Leaves is on that, right? That's correct. That's correct. But basically that was largely Miles's group, <laughs> but he was taking a sideman role to give some space for Cannonball to come through. Wow. Because Cannonball was part of Miles's first great quintet. Right. Right. So I just wanted to. Yeah, no, that makes some perfect sense. Because I was wondering, I was like, how is Miles now part of his group in this one? T- so it makes perfect sense that he kind of gave him the alley oop. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, he absolutely did. <laughs> and Cannonball, by the way, uh, he was an educator. He was a consummate uh, performer, improviser, band leader. I mean, he 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 would have taken off, mm-hmm. and he really did uh, have a lot of respect in the industry. Um, but you know, having Miles as yeah. part of your journey gives that extra lift that extra push Mm -hmm. so you mentioned earlier also about having classmates that were musicians and ended up you know working 
with other legendary jazz musicians, but one of the folks you also mentioned was Marcus Miller. And for me, I think that Miles's era working with Marcus Miller is probably my favorite. And it's probably also the most informative for me because it was the era that I was born into and grew up in. Mm -hmm. So I was hearing it very consistently around the house, but it's... Do you remember how you were, you were listening to it? How you were exposed to it? I mean, through the, I'm assuming through the speakers, like through the, <laughs> through the record player. Well, that's one of the things, yes. So do you remember listening to Miles on VH1? Yeah, they used to V so VH1, yeah, they would have all those like interviews, those jazz programs and the interviews and stuff. Yeah. Yes, yes. It was called New New Visions. At least that was one segment of New Visions, uh, where they would have jazz artists come in as hosts. For example, Dizzy Gillespie mm -hmm, mm -hmm. would come in and he would host a show along with uh Joe Williams. Uh it might be in the case of Miles Davis, uh, I believe that was in 1987 mm -hmm. uh he had on his guitarist foley i remember you recorded that episode on yes. vhs and would like rewatch it because i remember seeing that with, with him and foley up on there doing the interview yeah and this was around the time of a film score that miles had done the film was called siesta mm. uh, it had uh, martin sheen ellen barkin and that kind of mystery mm -hmm. and they would banter and i remember well, let me say, when Miles came back after his hiatus mm -hmm. due to illness and some other challenges that he had been facing, mm -hmm. your mother and I went to see Miles perform 1981. This was in July at the Cool Jazz Festival. I think it was George Ween that was putting that together. It was an extension of the Newport Jazz Festival. Oh, okay. And so it was at Avery Fisher Hall. And I remember that the tickets were kind of expensive at that time, but this was miles. Yeah. James Blood Ulmer, who's an amazing guitarist, I believe, was supposed to be on that bill, was supposed to open for miles. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen. So we were waiting for miles to show up. And everybody was like, okay, is he going to show up? Yeah. What's happening here? And they made an announcement. The show wasn't going to start yet. And, mm -hmm. gonna, you know, and so forth. And so he was like, in his oh, Lauren Hill mode. <laughs> <laughs> But at any rate, what happened was we were up in the balcony and then all of a sudden you hear this applause and, you know, Miles comes out and he's walking kind of slowly, mm -hmm. you know, a little slew footed, wearing these cargo pants and a cap and Marcus and, and Mike Stern and guitar and Al Foster and I uh, forget who else was on there, too. It might have been Mino Chenelu. Mm -hmm. And man, they went into it. They just absolutely went into it. Now, I'd gotten a preview of the music. There used to be a radio station in New York, WRVR. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I was listening to a very popular disc jockey, jazz disc jockey by the name of Les Davis. Mm -hmm. And he would play a variety of musics, different, different artists, uh, jazz artists, and from different genres, you know, different styles of, of jazz, let's say. And he played a song by Miles called Backseat Betty. And it just sounded absolutely amazing, this, this sort of sustained rock guitar sound and yeah. uh, this percussion. And, you know, the one thing I have to say, to this day, I've not heard any musician that 
creates the kind of music that Miles was creating. And I don't mean just in the 70s, yeah. during the Bitches Brew era, and when he's listening to Carl Heinz Stockhausen, mm-hmm. you know, as the inspiration for On the Corner. I find the eclectic aspect of Miles' music very exciting. His imagination, the way that he can incorporate reggae into mm-hmm. his music, the way that he can incorporate rock, the way that he can get some disco-type beat going in his music as well. So you also mentioned going to the show at Avery Fisher with mom. And that's really cool because I just happened to look up whenever you're talking about Backseat Betty and the album that was on. That was on his album, We Want Miles. And that album contained his live appearances, including Avery Fisher Hall. And that version of Backseat Betty that's on the album is the same one that you and mom heard whenever you were at the show. It's just cut in half lengthwise. But the album, the original album that that song was featured on is the original version. It's the studio recorded version. Right, right. And that's the one that I heard on the radio station by host Les Davis. Gotcha. We're talking about 1981 or so. And Miles has come through. He's, He's starting to do a little better. I know that he had had a stroke at one point early oh, on. Wow. wow. And he had married Cicely, Cicely Tyson. <laughs> Quote unquote, cousin Cicely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the important things that she did, among many, was really get his health together. Yeah. She introduced a vegetarian diet. He would do that, but he also would go, you know, with fish and do a lot more swimming, you know, when he was finally able to do that. But when he initially had that stroke and he had trouble with his hand, I think she arranged to have acupuncture done, but she also encouraged him to draw, to Mm. return to drawing again. And he found that one of the things is that it was also helpful to him because it took the edge off of a lot of the anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the music business, whether it's the social, racial climate, all the things that come with the living experience, especially in particular in, in living in America. Yeah. And so drawing would be a way for him to sort of relax and relieve himself. So if you see some videos of him, interviews, he has that drawing pad and he's you know working on something while he's talking as he was on VH1 in 1987 mm-hmm. with Foley. Mm-hmm. And in that particular instance, he was not only drawing, but he was also showing some of his work. And I love this particular piece that he did. Well, he did the drawings, he did the lines, and then the person who colored it, added the color to it, was a woman, a friend of his by the name of Julia, Julia Trozier. Mm. Later on, he would collaborate with another woman, Joe Gelbard. Joe Gelbard was another artist who also worked with Miles. He began to also collaborate with his assistant, a very incredibly talented person by the name of Michael Elam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they collaborated on a huge mural, part of a a backdrop for a concert that Miles did with his group back in the 80s. And at the same time, he also was very much interested in the work of other artists, aspiring artists. He was introduced to the work of people like Jean-Michel Basquiat, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He liked that directness, I believe. I think it, there's certain childlike qualities, direct, raw, yeah. uh, but also very sophisticated at the same time. And also yeah. 
uh, Jean-Michel included words in his compositions. And that's something that Miles embraced and would incorporate in some of his works as well. And didn't you say that Jean-Michel did a portrait that was inspired by Miles too, with the trumpeter with the, the crown? Yes, yes. <laughs> in fact, he would incorporate Miles' name in one of his paintings, at least one of his paintings. Wow. I think it was called Billy's Bounce. Wow. Yes. So it's cool you mentioned Basquiat and Miles' painting because it also makes me think of another video that used to play on VH1 all the time uh, was a medley from his Tutu album. Mm. And it was directed by Spike Lee. In that video, Miles is painting on a piece of glass that's in front of the camera. So it kind of looks like he's painting on the, the camera itself. Yeah. Um, and, and he's doing his artwork in this glass kind of like room. It's, it's so cool. It's like a collage of sound mm -hmm. of the different songs. There are four songs. Yeah. What Miles intended to do, he told Spike, you could take four different songs and put them together in one video. <laughs> so the first thing you hear is this mashup. Yeah. And then you hear, I believe it's Splatch. Yeah. Splatch is the first one. Yeah. And you see him and you see his artwork and you see him painting on the wall. Right. Yep. And so it really features Miles Davis, the visual artist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's really fantastic. I know that Miles had wanted Spike to get some of the colors, the I think the iridescent color effects that he had seen, that Miles had seen in a movie called Wolfen with Albert Finney. Wow, I haven't heard of that. And it has to do with uh, Native American shape-shifting. And there's some kind of iridescent color effects in there that Miles wanted incorporated into his videos. The first video that Miles did was for the song Decoy from his album by the same name, Decoy. And he wasn't happy with the results of it. Mm -hmm. But one of the things they tried to do in the video was to have Miles pantomime as though he was playing a trumpet and then have sounds coming out of the missing horn. I vaguely remember that music video. Like geometric shapes and, and things. Yeah. And, so, and, and it looked digitized. So yeah. it didn't look natural. Right. But there were other effects where you see the drums playing and, and uh, I would presume John Schofield playing the guitar, where you see these dots and lines and shapes bouncing around, which I thought was really effective. Yeah. I like that part the most. But the part where little sounds supposed to come out, it, it just wasn't as convincing. And, and Miles wasn't happy with the results. So right. he was hoping that by the time he worked with Spike, that he would be able to have more input yeah. in the final results. And he did. And his work was beautifully showcased. You could see him sitting on the ground and tossing some of his drawings that he did. You could see <laughs> the three-dimensional installation pieces that were just basically blow-ups of his drawings yeah. that were mounted. And also his jacket, his designs, the African mass on the back of this glittering jacket that he wore. Yeah. There were just so many aspects that I thought was um, really beautiful. There's a, in the last scene of that video, you can see Miles's shadow against a large rectangle. And next to it is an iconic image of a silhouette of Miles circa mid-1960s playing yeah. the trumpet. 
Yeah. And so they were trying to match the two, you know, put the two together to show him. And that ballad was probably my favorite cut off the album. Portia? Portia. Yeah. And I did a drawing. I did a drawing when I was uh, teaching at the University of Pittsburgh, Johnstown. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember showing one of my my students the work and she looked at it and she said that was inspired by miles davis (laughs) i said how would you know that how would you know that so she knew music she knew yeah 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 but she could also see the linear aspects of what i was drawing Mm -hmm. was inspired by miles's drawings that he had started to do on his album covers Wow. Star People was the first. And then the next album he had worked in was You're Under Arrest. And the drawings that are inside there, not only on the sleeve themselves, but also inside the gatefold, that style inspired me to create drawings that I continued to do for quite a number of years. I would say for at least a 10-year period. Yeah. A lot of my drawings were deeply inspired. Even some of my paintings, after I got back from Nigeria, my first Fulbright, mm-hmm. Double Vision, yeah. that was inspired by that approach that Miles did with these thin lines. It was just very impactful. Wow. And yeah. I had the opportunity to go to the Tower Gallery. I think the director was a guy named Gary Lejeski. And I called up finding out that Miles had had an exhibit, it already passed, but he had had an exhibit at the Tower Gallery. Mm-hmm. And I subsequently got a, an invitation. And I went to that gallery and I met the director. Now, the reason why I think they might have received me <laughs> after a cold call was because I said my name was Stephen Tyson and they made the connection perhaps with Sicily. Yeah. And so I went down there and he was very gracious, the director was. <laughs> sat me down. I think your mother was was there at the time. Mm-hmm. And this would be about 1984 or so. Mm-hmm. And he opened up a portfolio of Miles' drawings. Wow. He said, uh, on here we have this drawing and he did these and he did this and, and this is from that show. And we were thinking about putting that one in, but, um, you know, chose not to. And so he, he showed me this work and basically it was available for me to purchase. Mm-hmm. But at that time, I didn't have the wherewithal mm. to invest in some of these pieces, which were, you know, the hundreds of dollars. Right, right. Uh, so I graciously passed on that. Wow. But I took note. I took note of the drawings. From that point on, I continued to have a very deep appreciation for Miles's work. Yeah. And as I said, it it influenced a lot of pieces that I did. I remember I had one particular piece in a show called A False Sense of Security. I've always loved to do cartoons. You know, I remember your, your grandfather once said that I would make a fantastic political cartoonist. <laughs> and you know, I love the work of Al Hirschfeld and his use of lines yeah. and, and yep. caricatures. That's what I was, I, I, I love to do caricatures. Yeah. And so, these figures in this particular piece, a false sense of security, you have a couple of abstracted figures on the right, and on the left are these threatening 
characters with all kinds of weapons and things and one wearing a clan mm-hmm, hood. Mm-hmm. And so it's called false sense of security. Now I had this in a show in September of 1991 out in Ohio at the Trumbull yeah. Art Gallery. Yeah. I had invited Miles to that show. I sent an invitation to his management company. Mm-hmm. I think it was um, Peter Shukat. And of course, he didn't respond because I didn't realize at the time that he was in California, hospitalized, uh, mm. where he would die. I think it was a matter of a few days later, you know, wow. from the stroke. Yeah. But I wanted to, in a sense, say to Miles, you know, thank you for your inspiration. Yeah. You no, know? I didn't even know that he was he was ill. Yeah. You know? So yeah. it was just a way of, you know, paying respect. Wow. Um, now. Miles, as I say, was inspired by not only younger artists, and he was inspired by artists from all over the world. Uh, He also was supportive of other artists as well. He would collect the works of other artists, aspiring, struggling artists. So I think that one thing I can say about uh, Miles is that he was the complete artist. And when he jumped into something, he jumped in all the way and explored every aspect of it. Yeah. In the mid 80s, I heard about this project that was taking place where Miles was going to be creating music that was put together by a musician, trumpeter, and composer, and arranger by the name of Polly Mickelberg. Polly Mickelberg was so inspired by Miles that he took Miles's first name, M-I-L-E-S, and he assigned certain notes to those words. So you could play Miles's name. Right, right, as music. As music. And then he called the album Aura because he perceived colors associated with Miles. Oh, wow. So electric red, blue violet, white, uh, and some other colors. Yeah. And so never, the album is called Aura. I never knew that that was the background of Aura and why it was called that and why each song is a different color. Like I like I know of the broader concept of it and all, but I had no idea that it was really as intentional as breaking it down into, you know, his letters, making the theme of mm-hmm. the entire album, the letters of his name. That's, that's incredible. It It really is. And so... That wasn't released until a number of years afterwards, but it was produced around the same time that the album Decoy came out. And the photographer for the album cover of Decoy, I believe, was uh, Gilles Lorraine. Mm. And he also did the album cover, the sort of sepia-toned album cover. I would look at the album covers of, of Miles, whether it was a different photographer or different artists, but especially the ones that were done by Miles. So again, you find his work in Star People, 1983. Mm -hmm. Then there was Decoy. And then there was, in You're Under Arrest, the sleeve cover. Right, the sleeve sleeve cover. And the inside of the gatefold Mm -hmm. is his artwork. And Amandala, too. Yes. And Amandala was the next one. It came out in 89. And that on the cover, you have a portrait of Miles. Yeah. 
And it's a combination of the drawing of his partner at that time, Joe Gelbard, mm -hmm. and Miles' painting. Oh, that's cool. So it was a collaboration. Yeah, that might be... Uh, yeah, I, I would say, for me, 2-2 is probably my favorite album. Um, but Amandala is very close to it. You're Under Arrest is awesome. Doobop might be my second favorite, though, because... There's all that hip hop connection, which, you know, <laughs> speaking of, you know, you're talking about getting into the 90s. I mean, that's not only the end of Miles's life, but whenever he's also starting to make intentional connections with hip hop, too. Absolutely. And connected with Easy Moby and being able to make that album happen. Um, I remember, you know, you playing that a lot. And you also had some of like the CD singles of like the, the remixes of various songs like Fantasy yes. and Blow and all, too. That's correct. Um, but yeah, like that that album is really influential. Like, how did that one compare to all of these other works of Miles? Because I mean, he's evolved, you know, through so much time, and it seems like almost every evolution there's something in it that has really stood out and grasped you. What was it about Dubop that really connected with you? Well, you know, it's very interesting. You should say that if we go back and we we have to talk about the technology associated with each of the different recordings that he mm. was doing. Yeah, I think in the in the '60s, particularly around the period of Bitches Brew, you can't leave out the importance of people like Taylor Macero, who's mm -hmm. a producer. He worked very closely with Miles, uh, and when you think about how Miles was moving into the electric period in a silent way, for example, mm -hmm. right, which preceded Bitches Brew, you can hear the editing that's going on in the recording. You can hear the repeats, yeah. almost like a loop yeah. of a particular solo phrase. When you think about what he was doing with Bitches Brew and the technology that he was employing uh, with the trumpet and eventually trying to create this wah-wah sound, like the wah-wah in the guitar, yeah. bringing that rock flavor into it. But also, if you think about the wah-wah, it's almost like the muted trumpet yeah. And creating those vocal-like effects. Which he was already known for, for playing with the mute for so long. Yes. And not with the, in, in the same approach, like a Bubba Miley with, with Duke Ellington or, or others, or Louis Armstrong, for that matter. You know, the roots of it go back very deep, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a different approach. Miles would not be using the Wawa in those ways, the way those individuals would. But it was almost as though he was tipping a hat to that part of the tradition, yeah. You know, of what was called jazz. Now, Miles didn't really like the word jazz. He didn't like the label because he felt that it sort of pigeonholed you mm -hmm. in a particular category, sort of mm -hmm. segregated you. Mm -hmm. He would sometimes call it social music later on. Maybe it should be called social music. In wow. other words, as Duke Ellington would say, creating music that was beyond category, right? Yep. The highest echelon, you know, quality, striving for something, you know, that aspirational aspect of creating your best and giving your best and finding the best in limited circumstances. This is something that he continued to carry on. Yeah. So much to say. I mean, there's <laughs> so much to say. Miles, like many other artists, he would talk about balance and composition. Mm -hmm. So the importance of contrary motion. This is something that he saw in the work of Gil Evans, something that he admired, something that he also wanted to incorporate into his own work. Mm -hmm. It reminds me this sort of oppositional tension 
reminds me a little bit of the philosophy of an artist who recently passed, who I had the opportunity and the great honor to interact with on a couple of occasions by the name of Knox Martin. Mm -hmm. Knox Martin died at the age of 99. And he talked about oppositional elements in composition and, wow. and a curve against a straight line, hard against soft, yeah, light against yeah. dark, this sort of thing. And this kind of dynamic mix and finding meaning and direct expression, unfettered, mm -hmm. not imitation, not illustration of, but revelatory in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. And I could feel that in some of Miles' music when he would play lines, the way that he would balance or create the relationship between space and form, the form of line, something that he picked up from Thelonious Monk, among others. Yeah. You know, that sometimes what you don't say is as important as what you say. Yep. That's the quote. So I've had this quote in whenever I first ever created a Facebook profile, like back all the way back in college. Um, that was the very first quote that I added to that was, don't play what's there, play what's not there from Miles <laughs> Davis. And then it's and then when I started teaching and uh, being a professor, that's my signature quote at the end of my emails whenever I'm corresponding with students or anything like that. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's cool. That you bring that absolutely. up. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember a quote by Quincy Jones, mm -hmm. who's a friend of Miles and who tried to imitate Miles in his early days <laughs> uh, when he was with Lionel Hampton. And I think this was around the time of We Are the World. Mm -hmm. He talked about the importance of leaving some room for God to walk through. Mm, yeah. So space, silence, you know? Yeah. Be still and know that I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation, Dad. It's been... Awesome. We're just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> We're just warming up. That's very true. We are just warming up. I want to say that some of the drawings that Miles did can be linked to some of the early drawings of people like Bill Trailer. Mm, mm -hmm. Bill Trailer, you know, who came out of the period of Reconstruction and the Great Migration and so forth. This is part of the lineage, is what I'm saying. Yeah. That Miles' work and his legacy is so deeply connected with the American experience and the global experience that it will take many episodes to unpack mm -hmm. the significance mm -hmm. of what he did because what he did is so connected with everything and with everyone, yeah. whether they're conscious of it or not. Yeah, That's what makes his work so global and profound. Most definitely. Man, I haven't even, I haven't even scratched the surface. I mean, there's so much to say. I remember it was a great opportunity a number of years ago when Miles Davis was being honored with 77th Street between West End Avenue and Riverside mm -hmm. being dedicated to him, that street. Yeah. yeah. And many people turned out. Easy Moby was there spinning some records and his children were there. Mm -hmm. Cheryl and Aaron and his nephew, Vince Wilburn. Not everyone could be there, of course, but... Yeah. Uh, it was a great celebration. Greg Tate, Al Foster, mm -hmm. great drummer who worked with Miles for so many years. Even Julia Belafonte 
Harry Belafonte's uh, former wife was there as well. Wow. It was just a whole array of people. John Amos from Good Times. Yep. Right. From just over the river, New Jersey, where he, he grew up. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, after the street dedication and people were reuniting and meeting each other for the first time in many years, Quincy Troop and Michael Elam and Adam Holtzman, who was the musical director and keyboardist with Miles for a number of years. Jimmy Cobb was there. Uh, the list just goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. um, and so. Wow. You had everybody sign the book. As many as I could. This. Wow. Miles Davis, the collected artwork. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. See, I could do this whole chronology with Miles Davis on 60 Minutes with Harry Reasoner. I think. Ed Bradley might have been a better choice, but be that as it may. <laughs> well, primarily because Ed Bradley loved jazz. Mm -hmm. And in that particular feature on 60 Minutes, Miles was shown with his artwork out there in Malibu. Yeah. In his in his home. And I remember seeing one of the pieces that he had there, a print of his work, was shown in the background of an interview that was done with Maurice White, Earth, Wind and Fire. Mm, mm -hmm. Now they had briefly interacted and Earth, Wind and Fire was one of Miles Davis's, you know, favorite bands. I can uh, see that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Maurice had those jazz roots and, yep. and there's a lot to connect them, you know, coming out of primarily, although he was born in Memphis, you know, spent a lot of time in Chicago, which mm -hmm. is where of course his um, younger brother Verdine came from. Right. And so uh, the Ramsey Lewis, you know, seeing Chicago yep. again, Miles, you know, spent a lot of time in Chicago, had connections there, you know, family connections. Mm -hmm. uh, he was born himself in Illinois, Alton and East St. Louis growing up there. So, you know, I got the chance to see a lot of Miles's work. And subsequently, in the intervening years, I went to an exhibit of prints of Miles' work that was put together by two of his children and his nephew, Vince, mm -hmm. uh, down in lower Manhattan. And one of the artists that was there, the photographer uh, who had his work on display there was a gentleman by the name of Anthony Barboza. Oh, okay. Anthony was very, very tight with Miles. They spent a lot of time together, classic, iconic photographs of Miles throughout the years. In 1985, when the album You're Under Arrest came out, I picked up that album on Fordham Road. Was it Tower Records or Sam Goodies? Uh, Sam, Sam Goodies. Goodies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sam Goodies. That was, that was quite a spot there. In the window, they would have a video monitor and they would have the speakers outside and they would play Thriller. The first time we saw <laughs> Thriller. Yeah. And they would play that. And people would just be on the street corner, blocking the street, just watching this video. Amazing, yeah. amazing video. So now I'm teaching in the Bronx, IS-115. During lunch, I go in there and I purchase You're Under Arrest. Now, Miles is on the front cover. He's got a toy a machine gun. He's got this incredible jacket and fedora. And I guess it's sort of a... Spanish style jacket. Kind of, it was black. It was kind of like leather almost. Yeah, I don't know if it's called like a bolero type jacket. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, I was so impressed. And and it's very stark. And it's it's 
you know, the, the word you're under arrest is like smoke coming out of the nozzle of the gun, right? <laughs> now, I was fascinated by the photography of it, just as I had been with the work of Irving Penn, yeah. my favorite photographers who did the Tutu album cover. So I said, you know, I would love to talk with the photographer because I thought that my students, my art students, should have an opportunity perhaps to meet a professional photographer. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, I brought them to Bronx Community College, and that's when they had the opportunity to meet Romare Bearden, and Felipe Luciano. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see if there was a way that my students could meet a professional photographer. Yeah. And so I called him up. I called his studio. I explained the situation. I'm a teacher in the Bronx. I have these young aspiring art students that were part of the after-school art program that I had set up, which I mm -hmm. did at all the places where I taught. And he said, sure, have them come on down. I got their parents' permission. We took the subway down to Lower Manhattan and he opened his doors to us. And he showed them examples of his work. He showed them camera equipment what he does in order to create the effects. We took a portrait together, portrait photograph together. Oh, that's cool. And they were just, you know, floating out of there yeah. I, as I was, because I thought it was such a beautiful thing for somebody to do. Yeah. You know, so Anthony was that photographer. That's another connection with Miles mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that through the association of Anthony Barbosa and Miles and the album cover, that that inspired me to reach out to him. And in, in turn, he provided an opportunity for my students to see a professional artist studio, photographer's studio. Yeah, yeah. And you never know what impact that may have. I think it's just the experience of doing that. You know, I think everybody should take an art course. Mm -hmm. Everybody should take a music course. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily so they will become a professional artist or they may just do it as an amateur or as someone who just simply loves to do it yeah i think they will gain value out of it i think they will be enriched by it and that's what i wanted for my students yeah. i just wanted them to simply be enriched by the opportunity to be exposed to something that could be of benefit to them in some way <laughs> just as it was for me growing up in new york city my parents saw new york as a laboratory right and right. wanted to provide opportunities and expose us to different situations so that we can then make our own choices, but also to be informed and be enriched and encultured by various aspects of society in general. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to, to continue to do, no matter what your chosen profession is, you know, is to give yourself an opportunity to at least try a situation in the arts just to find what it has to offer you and perhaps what you can bring to it. Yeah. So after I saw the 60 Minutes interview and what Miles was doing, uh, I began to incorporate some of his work in my slide presentations in class, yeah. in my art history classes. Yeah. When you talked about the Spike Lee video mm -hmm. and he has this concept of this mashup 
of the diff- four different cuts from the album in, in one. Yeah. You see all of his artwork. It opens, as you said, with him painting on glass. Right. But a lot of people don't realize that Miles was called the Picasso of jazz. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As many people know, because he changed the music so many times, yeah. just as Picasso changed his approach and his style quite a number of times. Yeah. But there's a film of Picasso that was directed by a gentleman named Paul Hayserts in 1949 that shows Picasso painting <laughs> on glass. That's cool. Now, some people might not have seen that reference when they see Miles in the beginning. I'm sure, of the they, I'm sure they didn't pick that up, but I'm sure that Spike Lee... <laughs> knew about all of that and made sure that that was in there as a you know through line and a connection for sure. Absolutely. And I love the fact that musicians, as I said, love the visual arts. People yeah. like Chick Corea. I have a mm-hmm. book of Chick Corea's drawings. Some might call them doodles and so forth. You know, they came from his own imagination and spirit. Yeah. Duke Ellington started out as an artist. Oh, he wow. was going to originally go to Pratt, That's but crazy. music took over. He likes to wow. say it was the ladies, you know. And, and so <laughs> uh, but at any rate, mood indigo, reference to a particular color. Yeah. There are other terms that are color references in the work of Duke Ellington. Mm-hmm. And I think that quite a number of musicians themselves are synesthetes in that they, they can see colors. Yeah you know, when they hear notes or sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one aspect of synesthesia. So Duke Ellington painted, Tony Bennett paints, Joni Mitchell paints, Paul Mm -hmm. McCartney paints. What's the guy who played in um, Carey? What's his name? Oh, Jim Carey. Jim Carey. (laughs) (laughs) The mask. Yeah. Jim Carey's an amazing painter in in himself, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So um, I just love that that so many people in the field of music can relate. And, and as I told you, as a student at music and art, and I'm in the classroom doing a watercolor, and I hear sounds coming through the hallway. I hear, I, I hear them coming from the hallway, the students playing their cello, or celli. <laughs> it's not Latin. <laughs> Cellos. Right? Yeah, there you go. All right. <laughs> And I'm also hearing music coming through the window across the street from City College, and that's Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> so, so it's a natural for me to gravitate to musicians who speak to my heart in a way that suggests colors and shapes and forms and lines. Yeah. I can't listen to music without visualizing it. The way that I was listening to Stevie Wonder's music and I could see it in terms of colors and shapes, mm-hmm, listening mm-hmm. to James Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have an ability, I'm not considering myself a synesthet, but I do have a creative imagination where I can apply colors and lines and shapes to things that I hear, yeah. form to them. Now yeah. I've not done this in a very strict way in terms mm-hmm. of my own painting, my own art. Mm-hmm. Um, I just let it flow. Wow. Yes. This was such a deep conversation. I feel like we really just scratched the surface. So if anything, I'm down to continue this conversation. You know, maybe we bring in 
somebody who even knew Miles and can speak to him and his music and his person even more so because we were able to kind of talk about the ways in which it was influential to you as an artist and the ways in which it informed me with my appreciation of his music as a little kid. But to really kind of get more into the nitty gritty, I think that we definitely have an opportunity to follow up on a future episode. Oh, I absolutely look forward to that. This has been really exciting, Papo. And I thank you again for your wonderful questions and your great work uh, with this podcast. It's always a delight talking with you. <laughs> it's great talking with you too, Dad.